You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. If you want to be open in your Bibles, you can get your Bible out and open to Psalm 145. Uh, we'll start this morning by wishing my good friend Ben Stovall a happy birthday over here. He loves being the center of attention, guys. He loves it. He may, if I would sing happy birthday to him, but he would leave the church. He would, he would never, uh, ever come back. Uh, we're going to start off with a little interaction this morning. So it'll be a little different. And this is for adults and kids. Okay, I need to hear from you. So I want you to think about someone who really shaped you, either now as a kid or when you were younger. Uh, maybe it could be a teacher, a coach, a Sunday school teacher, parent, a grandparent, but someone who real, you really learned a lot from, someone who really influenced you, particularly in the area of your faith. I want you to think about that person. Pick, I want you to picture them in your head. Picture their face. If you need to close your eyes to help concentrate and focus, that's fine, but picture that person. Okay, now, this is the part where you get to participate. I want you to just shout out one word to describe that person. How would you describe that person? Joyful. Joyful, Faithful. faithful, patient. A lot of people with me were very patient. Yes. What would you say? Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Clearly talking about your dad. (laughs) Uh, What else? What's one word that you would describe uh, how they were with you? Loving, absolutely. Kind. Kind. I think I heard another patient, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The guy I'm picturing, the word that comes to mind was enthusiastic. So I don't remember a single devotional or Bible story that he taught. Uh, Well, I do remember one because he almost burned the school down. Uh, (laughs) What I remember most, he just loved God's word. He was just super enthusiastic about it. I I look back and I'm like, why do I love God's word so much? A lot of that is because of... Uh, this guy, Coach Fitzhugh, uh, was his name. But all of us, you know, we look back, we can all realize none of us got here by ourselves. All of us were are part of a chain. We were all influenced and in, in, uh, part of really a chain that reaches all the way back to the book of Mark. We just finished the gospel of Mark and it ended with the, the women running out and telling the disciples and then the disciples, they went and they passed on their faith. And one day in heaven, we'll be able to connect that chain from them all the way to us, of people who shared their faith with the next generation. I want us to think about and talk about this morning looking forward. So some other people influenced us, but who is going to be influenced by us? I want us to talk about and think about this morning the privilege and the responsibility that we have to keep that chain going and do what others have done for us and pass our faith on to the next generation. You know, it's kind of funny, this thing happens when, when you ask people to look back on the type of people that influenced you, we, we, you get all the same answers that we share. There's no surprises there. We, we'd all say the same things. But then sometimes when we think about looking forward, okay, what do we need to pass on our faith to the next generation? A lot of times you get different answers. A lot of times we think, you know, we need the most gifted, charismatic speaker. We need the, the biggest and the best programs and, and all the best facilities. But in reality... We don't need all those things. In reality, according to our passage today, according to Psalm 145, in reality, we need one thing, worship. 
Worship is all that we need to pass our faith on. Because Psalm 145, it describes this process of passing on faith from one generation to the next. And it works like this. And this is our big idea for this morning. We multiply what we love to the people we love. We multiply what we love to the people that we love. So open your Bibles to Psalm 145. It's not a real long psalm, and we're going to read the whole thing together. Starting in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever, forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the, the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I heard a song one time, somebody put this psalm to music and the title of the song was a song of a God admirer. And that's what this is. He is gushing with worship, just admiring who God is. Verse one through three talks about God's greatness. He says it's unsearchable. He says, every day, forever, I will praise you, but it won't be enough. He's saying, all of my brain power, in fact, all of our collective brain power, all of our time, we could use all of our computing power trying to figure out how great God is. We'll never be able to calculate it all for all eternity. But, he says, as long as I have time, I'm going to use all that time to try. I'm going to praise you every day. Verse 8 and 9, he's talking about God's character. He says, God is merciful. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, y'all, the author here, he didn't make these words up. This phrase, this is throughout the Old Testament, this is the core of who God is. You'll see this phrase repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, often at very key moments, pivotal moments. I'll give you one example. Exodus 34. 
God is renewing his covenant with Moses and with his people, and he's giving him the second copies of the Ten Commandments because of their sin with the first. In the previous chapter, he has just shown Moses his glory as Moses hid in the cleft of the rock. And right then, right there, as he's renewing a covenant relationship with Moses and his people, this is what he says. This is who I am, Moses. I am gracious. I am merciful. I am slow to anger, and I'm abounding in steadfast love. Lots of people these days are real into personality tests, you know. And so when I, I remember taking one, the, it's, I think it's the Myers-Briggs, where you get the four letters. If God took the Myers-Briggs personality test, that's how it would come out. G-M-S-A. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What he's trying to say is, y'all, these are not things that God does. God doesn't just uh, give mercy in certain situations. He is merciful. He, he doesn't just act lovingly sometimes. He is love. It's who he is. It's not just what he does. And then next, the psalmist talks about God's rule, his power. He says, he has no equal. He has no rival. He is never not in control. And the way Psalm 2 puts it is, for a time, with our limited perspective, you know, it can seem like all the kingdom and all the nations are at war and they rage against each other. But while that goes on, it says, God just kind of chuckles. He just kind of chuckles. Look at this kid's try. Ha. Because the Bible tells us that one day, all the nations of the earth will become the nations of our Lord and his Christ. God's not intimidated. And then this thing happens, the shift happens. In verse 14, really throughout the rest of the psalm, it shifts from the general to the personal. From God is good to God's been good to me. From God is great to God has been great to me. He says, you know, I cried out to God and he answered me. I was bowed down and God lifted me up. It reminds us this morning that worship doesn't just arise from knowing facts. You know, worship comes from, yes, knowledge, but infused with experience. To worship him, you have to know him, not just know about him, is what the psalmist is saying. So he says in verse 13, he uses some interesting words. He says, God is kind and faithful. What's interesting about those words is those words are almost always used to describe a servant. The best servant, one who is faithful, who is loyal, who is dependable. And so what's he saying here? He's saying, you can count on God to show up in your life. He always does. He's faithful. He's dependable. In verse 15 and 16, he talks about God's joyful provision to his creation. He says, he has satisfied me, God has, when nothing else could, because he created me, and I I am his. And listen, I know there's many of you here that you came to Jesus after searching for life and joy and pretty much just about everything else, but you couldn't find it. The psalmist says, I found it in God. He satisfies me. But I love I love verse 18 and 19 because he talks about God's nearness. He says, God is near enough to hear me when I cry out to him. And he's near enough to respond. He's near enough to do something about it. But understand here, he's not talking about distance nearness. He's talking about relationship nearness. He's saying he's like like a close friend. 
You know, we, I think we all know God. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. He has the ability. But sometimes the question in our life is, but does he care about me? Does he notice me? Is this great, all-powerful God small enough to hear me and reach me and intervene for me? And this says, according to Psalm 145, you'll never have a friend closer than Jesus. He sees, he knows, he cares, this great God does. And this is the idea behind, we read in verse 8, his, when it describes his steadfast love that he's abounding in, that he's overflowing with. This word, steadfast love, it's the word hesed. It's God's loyal covenant love. And it's another one of these words that, that God uses to describe himself over and over and over again and in key moments. In fact, some people argue this is the most important word in the Old Testament. It appears over 250 times. You'll read it translated as faithful love, as steadfast love, as unfailing love. And it's the type of love that always occurs in the context of covenant, of eternal relationship. He's essentially saying God has married himself to you. That's how you know his love won't fail. That's how you know it will be steadfast. He is all in in his love for you so much so he has bound himself to you. The God of the universe has bound himself to you. It doesn't get any more personal than that. And you know, at this point you may be asking, oh, wait a minute, what does all this worship have to do with passing on our faith? You know, shouldn't we talk, be talking about uh, strategies for evangelism and strategies for discipleship? Well, according to the psalm, according to one, Psalm 145, we are. Because what the psalmist is saying here is that worship and discipleship, men and women, it is a package deal. It goes together. Back in the 1980s, uh, the world met a woman named Rosie Ruiz for the first time. And they met her because she won uh, the women's leg of the Boston Marathon. This is a huge race. And this was surprising because, y'all, no one had ever heard of Rosie Ruiz. They had no idea who she was. And then not only did she win, she set the world record. It was unbelievable. And so she, her name's in the paper. She shot the fame. Everybody's asking, you know, who is this lady? She, she ran the Boston Marathon in two hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds, beating all the world-class athletes of her day. But then after the race was over, it didn't take very long before somebody said, you know what? I think I saw that woman on the subway. Somebody else was like, yeah, she was in the crowd. I saw her in the crowd right here. So they did about five minutes of investigating, and they found out, hey, Rosie, she started the race with everybody, with all the runners. But then not far into it, she just kind of hopped off in the crowd, got on the subway, rode it to the finish line, hopped in the finish line, winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> World record, boom. And so if you look, we got another picture of Rosie. If you pan out, that's her getting arrested. <laughs> but now think about this. She crossed the finish line first. What's the big deal? And if the whole goal, if all that matters is crossing the finish line first, then she's the winner. But it turns out how you get there is just as important. When it comes to passing on our faith, evangelism, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, how we get there, running the race is worship. 
discipleship has to arise out of our worship. That's why Paul uses this exact same metaphor of running a race. He uses it repeatedly. And he says, yes, I want to run to win the prize, but I also want to run the race set before me. And I want to do it with endurance. No shortcuts, no skip to the end. I want to run a good race. And that's what it looks like for us. See, true worship desires to see itself multiplied. This is how it works. Whatever it is that I love, I want the people that I love to love those things. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. He says in verse, really verse 4 through 7, they're all about one generation of God admirers passing on their admiration, their worship to the next. See, passing on faith, it's much more than an information dump, and it's even much more than uh, morality. And we can get this way, especially with kids sometimes. With my own kids, I get this way, where it's like, I just turn into a mathematician. Two plus two equals four, okay? Here's the information you need to know. Or for your older folks, Columbo, just the facts. Here's the facts. Or I just turn it into morality. You know, act this way, be good, don't be bad. You know, so it comes out something like, hey, God created the world in seven days. Noah saved the animals. Jesus died on the cross. So don't be mean to your sister. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Verse 4 in Psalm 145, it uses the word commend. Commend is an important word because it's so much richer than just relaying facts. The word commend, the definition is to praise in a public way, to recommend to someone else as worthy of their confidence. So what he's saying here is passing on our faith, you know what it is? It is public worship. It is public bragging about God. Think about this. We, we use this word commend when we give someone a commendation. When we give someone a commendation, we, you know, what do we do? We gather all their loved ones. We throw a banquet. We invite honored guests and people talk about what the person has done. We give plaques. It's a, it's a celebration. It's not just information. It is public, joyful, shout from the rooftops, praise. That's why he says in verse 7, I'm going, I'm going to pour forth your fame. Your fame and your worthiness is going to overflow out of my life. I'm going to make sure other people hear my worship of you. What the psalmist is saying is we multiply what we love to the people that we love. C.S. Lewis said this. He, he pointed out that our worship, it isn't really finished. Our worship is incomplete until we do this, until we multiply it with the people that we love. He said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have a new author and not be able to tell somebody how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and to have to keep silent because the person with you cares enough for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy 
him. What's he saying there? He's saying we haven't fully enjoyed God, glorified him, worshipped him until we share him with the people that we love. You know, we live in a uh, scientific culture and what's interesting is more and more research is proving that your commendation and my commendation matters. Barnard Research has done a lot of research into how people come to faith. And obviously we know this, the most impactful season of life is childhood. That's when most people come to faith. But what brings people to faith? Well, the research shows unequivocally that most people are impacted by the people closest to them. That's how it happens. In fact, only 7% responded to a minister's prompting. And so that's the pastor or the professional Christian, you know, doing the altar call. Only 12% were saved at a church service or other special event. That's the camp. That's the youth rally. That's it, just 12%. But the overwhelming majority are brought to faith by an everyday person in their life, a parent, a friend, a teacher. So what the research shows, is it's not about the skillful preacher. It's not about the altar call. It's not about sending them to the right camp. What our kids need most, y'all, it's not Billy Graham. It's not even VeggieTales. Our kids need those closest to them multiplying what they love to the people that they love. That's what makes an impact. They have a quote at the end of their study. It says this, consistently, that's a big word, consistently explaining and modeling truth principles for young people is the most critical factor in their spiritual development. Another group did a study of, okay, let's look at what actually was successful. And so they studied uh, what, what made kids who came to faith continue their faith through adulthood. What, what are the common factors there for uh, lifelong faith? And the answers are surprising. And conveniently, they put it in a nice little picture graph for us. Number one, they ate dinner five to seven nights a week as a family. Now you read that and you think, what about food? Makes kids come to faith. Well, nothing. It's not about the food. It's about everything else but the food. When you sit down five to seven nights a week with a God admirer, what do you think comes out? Right? The food simply creates the space to multiply what we love in the people that we love. Number two, they served with their families. In church, number three, they were entrusted with responsibility in ministry at an early age. Number four, they had one spiritual experience in the home during the week. Number five, they had at least one believing adult consistently in their lives other than their parents. Now, y'all, this might be the most countercultural slide you will ever see. Because most of the things that if we just went around town and asked, okay, what's going to impact our kids? Most of the things that most people would say make the difference, they don't even show up on the list. They're not even here. In fact, quite the opposite is on the list. So I don't know if you noticed, two of the top three factors are about kids learning to serve and participate with the people closest to them. But for decades, y'all, for decades, Probably my whole life as a, as a Christian, much of our culture has taken the exact opposite approach. 
Most of us, we've tried to pass on our faith by making our kids excellent consumers of programs. And we thought, maybe that'll do it. But y'all, it doesn't work. And we've done this long enough. Y'all, there are legions of parents who are shocked and they are heartbroken. It is heartbreaking when their kids leave home or they go off to college or they become adults on their own and they, they stop going to church and they have no interest in their faith. And as a, as a pastor, I've heard over and over again, oh, the world, the world, you know, the world is secularizing our kids. The world is... The truth, unfortunately, is it's not the world. Unfortunately, the truth is often much more tragic. Too often, when we fail to multiply what we love with the people that we love, that next generation, y'all, they get secularized at home. It happens at home. Often, when, they, when kids leave home, all they're doing after they leave home is going where most of their friends are and going to what's the most fun. And y'all, they didn't learn that out there. They learn that in here too often. I'm just going to go where my friends are and go to where the, what is the most fun. And eventually, what's where most of the friends are and what is the most fun is not church anymore. And it's not their faith anymore. And if we want to reverse that trend... If we want to reverse that, and we do, we have to start taking our cues from God's word, from Psalm 145, more than from our culture. You know, so what if we taught our kids, what if we taught our teenagers that church isn't about me? It is about him. It is about us commending God to one another. That is what we are doing here. Another thing that study shows that's very counterintuitive is who makes the difference. It's not just what makes the difference. It is who makes the difference. Because the culture will say, you know, our kids, they need the, the funniest, most dynamic speaker we can find. And listen, is that bad? Are those things? But no, no, those things are not bad. I love fun. I love good Bible teachers and charismatic speakers. Maybe we can get one here someday. I hope so. <laughs> this study says, though, and y'all, our hearts tell us and common sense tells us they need the people closest to them. They need their parents, and it also says they need other adults who are God admirers, who are consistently in their life. The Bible, and apparently science say, the next generation, they need us multiplying what we love to the people that we love. Just regular, consistent, ordinary people in their life, commending God to one another. You know, and I look at that and I read the psalm and I read the studies and it's, it's convicting. I'm not great at this. And I look at my own life and I think, you know what? This, man, it's easy to understand. It makes sense. And it's easy to intend to do. But in our world of busyness, competing agendas, messiness, if I'm honest, y'all, it is hard to pull off sometimes, isn't it? And so I want to get practical. How can we make this church, our homes, places where God admires, spread God's fame to the next generation. So just a few things. First one is first for a reason. Show up. Show up. Our number one enemy is our busyness. We all know it. We all feel it. In fact, some of you, even as you've been sitting here this morning, you're thinking about all the things you got to do and all the things coming up next. We're so busy. The Bible puts it this way. The New Testament says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Now, we usually think about it opposite. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about, you know, nobody cares about God anymore. Nobody cares about spiritual things anymore. This world is so terrible. That's not what Jesus thought. And it's also not what the research says. There is a harvest. All all our current research says people are hungry for spiritual things. But the workers are few. And honestly, I think if you wrote a a modern version, it would go like this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are distracted. The workers aren't showing up. The workers are busy. One of the best books I've ever read is a book called The Screwtape Letters. uh, Again, by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, marvelous book. Brilliant. It's brilliant because here's what he does. It, it, screw tape is a demon and he's got a boss. Everybody's got a boss, you know. So he's reporting back to his boss uh, and he's been assigned this one Christian and his whole job is to derail this one Christian. And so he's, he's writing back about all the strategies and all the hard work and all the intentionality, all the things that he's doing to get to this guy. One of the best exercises I had to ever do in seminary was the professor said, okay, you write your own version, but you're your demon. Right? That was fun. Think about it. If you were your demon sent to derail you, how would you derail you? How would you keep you from multiplying what you love to the people that you love? Well, I think there's some things maybe that, you know, we think are obvious, but that wouldn't get very far. So let's say if I was your demon, I don't think I would, some of you may think I am, I wouldn't get very far. <laughs> I wouldn't get very far trying to convince you that, like, your kids aren't important. Right? Or that your faith isn't important. So if I just, you know, whisper to you, like, ignore your kids. They're ugly anyway or something. You'd be, you'd be like, worst demon ever. Get out of here. I don't listen to you. But I bet. You know what I bet I could do? I bet I could feel, fill your life so full of seemingly good stuff that you're too busy, too tired, too maxed out. And you keep all your good intentions, but you stop showing up. That's what my demon will do to me, guys. And all the research says this is exactly the reality playing out in our churches today. We got to understand. We got to understand where we are and, and where we live in our culture. We have to understand this. In order for us to say yes to multiplying what we love, we will have to say no to other things. That's just the reality. Now, I don't know what yours is. It could be saying no to the uh, easy retirement you thought you'd have. It may be saying no to sports. It may be saying no to your comfort zone. You know, you're waiting around for the professionals to come riding in like the Calvary. And it's just us, guys. The Bible, and again, science say, our consistency matters. So we have to be a people who shows up, who shows up in each other's lives, who shows up for the next generation. And, and y'all, we have to teach our kids to show up. One generation cannot commend God to the next generation if either side isn't showing up. So let's be a people who shows up. Second thing is this, be intentional with your everyday times. Be intentional with your everyday times. I tend to think grandiose. Okay, let's have a weekend long family summit conference and that'll fix it. No, it's particularly true for parents, but also uh, any, anyone in your household. This is the way Deuteronomy says it. When he tells the whole people of faith, here, here's how you're going to pass on the next generation. He says, just surround your life, everyday life in me. The words I've given you, write them on your doorpost, talk about them when you rise, when you go to bed. Just surround your life 
with me. We need to normalize talking about spiritual things in the home. I'll tell you, if you're a parent, great place to start. We send home with you things that we talk about on Sunday morning. And it has verses on there. It has a question that you can ask your kids. And it arms you for that moment when you turn around in the car and you say, what did y'all talk about in church? And the kid says, nothing. See? All right? You can say, no, I know it's not nothing. I have it right here. You're so busted. We're going to talk about it. No matter how busy you are, there's three times you almost always have. Three times. No matter what. Car time, meal time, bedtime. So make a plan to be intentional with those times. They may not be long. That's okay. But again, it's consistency that matters. So pray with your kids at bedtime. If you don't want to pray, start with that phrase. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. Say, hey, let's, let's pray that to God this morning. Let's praise him tonight. You could use that time to share your testimony. Have you ever shared your testimony with your kids? It's a great thing to do. You can talk about a passage, talk about a verse, talk about what we talked about at church. You can do a family worship time. Did you know with just 10 minutes and a Bible and preferably somewhere to sit, y'all can gather around and you can open up God's word and you can read a verse and you can talk about it. And you can say, what do you think? And you can say, what do you think? You say, I don't know. And then you can pray together in just 10 minutes. There's great resources out there, all kind of kids' uh, devotionals, all kind of Bibles. So you could say, hey, we're going to take five, ten minutes in the morning, and everybody's going to read something. And if you need help on resources, I can definitely recommend some. You can write verses to your kids, notes to your kids. There's all kind of things you can do, but here's what I want each and every one of us to do. So they say a habit takes 21 days. So I want you today to think of one thing you can do to commend God to your kids, if you don't have kids, someone in the next generation. One thing, and then do that thing for the next 21 days. Third thing is this. Use holidays and traditions. I don't know if y'all know this. A lot of our major holidays were meant to celebrate and worship God. I know. We just had Easter. Y'all, don't let a whole Easter go by that's just about Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. I mean, include those. That's great. But you can also use them to commend who God is. When my kids were younger, we would, I remember one time reenacting Palm Sunday. I'll give you one guess on who got to be the donkey on that. <laughs> we do, my wife came with this, and I, and I love it. We do these Easter baskets where the night before they put out Easter baskets and we put rocks in them, and those rocks symbolize our sin. And then we read the verse, the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so the next morning they come, and those rocks have been replaced with all kind of goodies and treats. There's Christmas. We, do, we sit around and do the Advent wreath and light the candles, just like we do in church. And my, my kids love it. And I think at least half of that's because they're obsessed with fire, uh, maybe in a healthy way. But still, they love it. It helps us tell the story. There's baptism. There's communions. There's birthdays. Pick a, pick a verse or a, a prayer for your kid and, and tell it to them on their birthday. You know what a great time away from all the normal busyness of life is? Family trips. Family vacations. Start your family trip or vacation day with doing some kind of devotional together. There's all kind of ways to do it. We just have to be intentional and consistent. Next one is this. Commend with your community. Commend with your community. I don't know if you noticed it, but that fifth uh, common factor for people who lived out their faith was other voices besides parents. 
And in Psalm 145, as the psalmist is writing, we have to understand he's talking to a whole community. He's talking to a whole generation. He doesn't just like pull some parents aside and say, hey, you guys, you need this. No, it's everybody. The next generation needs every part of the body working together. Because every, if you've ever been here, every parent has experienced this thing, you know, where, um, you know, you go pick your kids up and, and they say, oh, you'll ne- guess what my teacher said. And inevitably, inevitably, whatever they say is something you have told them a million times. But they act like it's like the first time anyone has ever uttered these words. And in that moment, you have two simultaneous reactions. Number one, really? I mean, seriously? Number two, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping me in this. This is why we have the church, so all of us can speak with one voice to the next generation, so all of us can worship God with one voice. And you all know this, every parent in here has a hard job. They are trying the best they can, and they need other voices they can trust. And I'll tell you right now, in particular, we have needs in our nursery and our preschool. And so if you have time for that, please shoot me an email. We need the whole church chipping in. And listen, the qualifications are not that you're a kid person or that you like kids or that you're good with kids. The qualification is that you are a God admirer. Do you worship him? Has he changed your life? Then you're qualified. Last one. Don't get on the subway. Don't just turn it into a checklist. Just trying to get to the finish line as as quick as possible. That's not what we're called to do. Be led by your worship. See, anytime I put a list up, anytime with any list, there's a danger to any list. It's it's this. I I can think as long as I'm, you know, man, perfect attendance, taking my kids to church, we're doing a family devotion, we're serving in the class. I'm doing all the things, and that's all that matters. But if it's just actions without the heart, then all we are doing for the next generation is setting them up for confusion, for mixed messages, and for hypocrisy. Here's why. Multiplying what you love to the people you love, it's not optional. It is already happening in your home. Your kids know what you love. I love college football and food. Every, almost all my Father's Day, Christmas gifts have to do with those things. I don't have a summit about it. They just know. So what my kids and your kids need most is it's not walking Pinterest boards. They don't need Matt Chandler, Matt Chandler for a dad or Martha Stewart for a mom. They need you to love Jesus. And I'll tell you, if you ask any kid, who's trying to follow the Lord, what they really want from their parents, they'll tell you, I just want my parents to follow Jesus too. So your takeaway this morning, let's say it may be, yeah, I need to be more consistent. I may, may need to be more intentional. I may need to, do, need to do a few of the things that we've talked about, or it might be, I need to turn into a God admirer. Maybe you need to let the worship of God rearrange your whole life. You need to remind your own heart That God is gracious and he is merciful. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love to you. You need to remember the times he has been there for you. You need need to take some time like this psalmist and worship God and remember his goodness towards you until you are filled with worship. Then, and only then, 
Find someone in the next generation and multiply it. Multiply what you love to the people that you love. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.